From station to station, you can feel the old vibration shaking from Genesis to Revelation. Redeem a full of culture, y'all. Welcome back to this, the 21st episode of the Startwell podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kasim Virgi, Startwell CEO and founder. And for this session, we're going to take a listen to a panel discussion uh, that kicked off our inaugural episode of Cannabinoid Futures, which is a speaker series that we host once a month in our event space on King Street. This time around, uh, we had members of Leaf Forward, in fact, the founding members of Leaf Forward, which is a local um, accelerator program for cannabis, hosting and moderating a panel that included Vanmala Subramaniam from the National Post, Matt Lamers from Marijuana Business Daily, Jay Rosenthal from Business of Cannabis, and uh, of course, we fielded questions from the audience at the end. It's an engaging listen, and the topic was about the media landscape and how it relates to cannabis. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, would like to point you to our website at startwell.co slash programming to find out when the next event that you can attend is. And of course, recommend you continue listening to our podcast as we'll be republishing live recordings like this in the future. Great. Well, thanks so much, Kasim, for hosting us. This is a beautiful venue. Very uh, happy to be here. Uh, it's our first time hosting an event here, and I, I hope that we'll be hosting many more in the future. Uh, and thank you so much to our panelists. It's, uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation tonight. Um, so uh, I guess just uh, while well, Jay's getting set up there, would love for kind of each of you just to give a background of who you are, how you got in the industry, and, and what you do. We can start with you, Van Mellon. Um. I'm having a cold, so if I'm yelling, it's because I can't hear. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I started reporting on cannabis when I was at Vice. So I joined Vice somewhere mid-2016, and I came in as to report on personal finance, economics, but Vice did a lot of reporting on cannabis. They didn't do the business side of it, so I started doing that. I did that for about two years plus, and then I was hired by the Financial Post to be the designated cannabis beat reporter. And that was a little bit before legalization. And that's when everything really took off. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my background. I've been in journalism for about 10 years. So was doing non-cannabis stuff before that. Awesome. Matt? Thanks for having me. Um, I work for Marijuana Business Daily. I report mostly on uh, Canada, uh, every market except the United States. Um, Marijuana Business Daily focuses on news for businesses, which is a little bit different from like a mainstream, a mainstream outlet. And I've been there since about mid 2017. Um, I was actually a journalist in a different country, and I was looking for a reason to come back to Canada. And then I was lucky enough to have this opportunity to open up. Canada was legalizing cannabis at the exact right time for me, anyways, for my job prospects. Which country <laughs> were you in? I was in uh, Grand Cayman. Very cool. At a newspaper okay. there. Cool. Jay. <laughs> Make it. Making the reverse move from the Grand Cayman to Ontario. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> Smart. Um, so uh, I'm Jay. I've introduced myself already. I've seen famous people do this. Um, so uh, we started Business of Cannabis in mid 
to late 2017. We were looking for something, a gap to fill in the market of what was being talked about on the cannabis space. Um, I come from a public affairs background and, and it seemed to me assessing what was going on in the market that the industry didn't have any constituency outside of the couple thousand people that worked in it. I'm not sure that's actually expanded much better, but uh, from my background, I knew that if you don't actually start talking about the interesting, cool job creating stuff happening within an industry, nobody will care what's happening, especially with cannabis where it was positive, yes, but mixed reviews of what was about to happen. And so to give some legitimacy to the industry, I got to read these guys, distill it a little bit, invite who they were talking to to come on like a video or a podcast, and that's how we sort of got started. I'm only being half-hearted, like I do read everything they write, uh, but it's really uh, adding a lens to that that is very, um, we like to focus on sort of leaders and founders initially about what was happening because they, to us, were representing something unique in the Canadian landscape of hyper-entrepreneurs taking a massive risk in an uncertain area, and that was interesting to talk about. It's funny, I was on a panel last week with Amela and we were talking about Cannabis 2.0 and how this first year of legalization has gone. And I answered the question last time, but I'd love to get your, uh, your thoughts on how this first year has gone and you know, what was good, what was bad, what was ugly. And I, I guess we can start with even Mela. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I asked you that, right? Um, so. <laughs> it, it really doesn't matter. I'm you guys are the focus tonight. <laughs> um, well, I mean, actually Brett and I had, had pretty similar thoughts on this. I think the first year has been pretty bleak, and I would qualify this, by, uh, qualify that by saying it has been bleak on two fronts. So, for consumers, it has been a little bit of a letdown. Uh, it's still cool that we can walk into a shop on Queen Street and buy legal weed. I, you know, that's something that you know we do have to think about. But at the same time, I think the expectations was that the shops are going to be everywhere the kind of product you want is going to be in that store at that particular time. You're not going to have to buy it on the Ontario Cannabis Store. Um, you know, you're going to have more product variety beyond flour, and the flour is going to be good. So, you know, there are a lot of things that uh, didn't meet consumer expectations, and I would say that you're starting to see that catch up to the licensed producers. So I think the licensed producers have, have now realized, oops, we can't just flood the market with a lot of flour. People care about what they want to smoke, what they want to kind of buy, right? So I think, you know, on the consumer front, it hasn't been that great. On the LP front, uh, I think it's been bad. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, and it, it, re it really has. And I, and I try to not make, sound too glum about the industry because, you know, we are the second country that has done this. But I think that uh, they uh, took a, took uh, the industry took a big bet on this. Um, there was a lot of stock pumping. There were a lot of promoters in the space. There were a lot of average retail investors who, in a way, you know, I have friends who kind of got tricked into thinking this was going to be a win for them, uh, without really knowing the kinds of companies they were investing in. A good example was CanTrust. You know, and when I started covering this, CanTrust was a company that even I thought was credible. And, you know, the analyst was saying that, yeah, CanTrust is a good company. Management is great, et cetera, et cetera. Turns out they're growing in unlicensed spaces. So there's a lot of corporate governance issues that are coming to light, coupled with uh, the LPs just not being able to figure out who their market is and how to provide for that market. So I think that, that's how I would sum it up. 
Yeah, Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I'll just add that it kind of depended on um, maybe your expectations for the first year. Um, I didn't expect the first year was going to go well. I thought it would be a mess in most, in most of the provinces, um, with the exception of Alberta. Um, the previous NDP government easily had created the best legal framework for businesses to operate in, and that was entirely predictable. I'm really, I was really happy when the new government came in, the cons uh, conservatives in uh, Alberta, and they didn't change uh, or roll back the previous government's retail plans. And you're seeing in Alberta what the rest of the market, what the rest of the country could be like if we had uh, provincial regulators who did what, did what was in the best interests of uh, consumers, uh, health advocates, and businesses. And unfortunately, we haven't really seen that in places like Ontario, anywhere, anywhere with the exception of Alberta and you know, maybe Saskatchewan, to, to a lesser extent, maybe Manitoba. But every other province bungled it pretty badly, especially British Columbia, which has the largest illicit market, and their government is, still isn't taking it seriously. Um, there's a lot they could be doing in that market. They could, be, they could immediately allow farm gate sales, which would help smaller companies. They could promote... Um, I know the province doesn't uh, regulate micro-cultivators, but there's a lot that the province could do in that, in that market to help those smaller businesses. And that's probably the most important cannabis market in Canada because if the illicit market is going to continue going on and on and on in British Columbia, then uh, it's going to be harder for legal businesses in a regulated market to not compete there but across the country because there's so many consumers who still rely on uh, mail-order products from British Columbia. That's a current, uh, I mean, that's not going to go away any, anytime soon, right? Um, in terms of, like, consumer preferences, yeah, I totally agree with what you said. Um, another thing is that um, you can't, maybe now it's improving, I guess, but from a consumer's perspective, when you go into a store and you get something you like, and then you want to go back and get it a week later or two weeks later, it's never there. And that in, in any other market, it's impossible. It's completely impossible to run a business like that. You can't run a business by selling your product uh, in, an, in an unpredictable manner. It has to be available consistently every single time the consumer goes into the store. And if it's not, then they're just going to get something else and they're going to go to a different brand. Uh, I mean, all the, all the branding, uh, branding and advertising restrictions notwithstanding, if your product isn't available every time a consumer wants to buy it, then... You know, it's going to be pretty tough to sell your stuff. Jay? Sorry. Sorry. I'm just stuck on BC mail order. Yeah? <laughs> that sounds like a thing. Um, Brett, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. You know, I, I knew you were going to say know, that. I've been saying it. Um, it has been the best of times and worst of times. I think, you know, we legalized cannabis in the past year. That's amazing. That's good. We can't... We basically can't sell it, certainly not in this province. Not great. Um, we have a couple products you can buy. Even if they're great and people are buying them, there's like half the products that people just can't get yet, right? We had a great run in terms of serving patients and getting patients signed up. We've had a plateau of that right now. Like, We have the opportunity to do interesting clinical research about medical cannabis, and getting a license to actually do that is really hard. We have great companies and the smartest people in Canada working on building brands, and the regulations don't allow it, and that has real consequences about creating a global brand, because the US is good at that. I mean, so like, it's Dickensonian. That's not the way, that's not a real word. But I mean, it has been amazing, and these companies, even though today and other days they've been shitting the bed, 
And that's really terribly difficult for an emerging industry and people we all know and love. At the same time, those businesses five years ago, there, there wasn't even a thing, right? So it, it's the good and the bad. It's a tough time. It's going to get tougher before it gets better, I think. And uh, year one has been, yeah, like Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I'd love to make a shift a bit to the media side of things. So when a new industry emerges, there's always a media that's covering it. And it always takes a bit of time for that media to learn about that industry, to understand its nuances and the characters and the details of it. How do you think that's going so far from just a reporting standpoint? And uh, Matt, we can start with you on that. Sure. I, again, I think it kind of depends on who you're reporting for and who your audience is. So the stuff I report and how I report it is a little, is a little bit different from the Financial Post. Uh, I report uh, for businesses, kind of business intelligence. I'm always focusing on current and future trends, especially future trends, um, current and future data and regulations. Um, because the businesses operate, if you're operating in the legal industry anyways, you're operating within the bounds of, of those regulations and you're not allowed to do anything else. So if you don't understand that, you're gonna have a pretty hard time making money legally. But in terms of how the, how the business to business media landscape is going, there aren't, um, there probably aren't enough reporters doing business to business reporting. There's, I think, in the mainstream, mainstream media in Canada employs, um, most of the big media companies employ one or two cannabis reporters, and I think that's really good. One thing I'm surprised of, but it makes sense, is that in the U.S., where the cannabis market is much, much bigger than Canada, um, the big newspapers and the big uh, wire agencies generally don't have very much um, cannabis coverage. But that's because it's illegal federally. So it's hard for them to have a cannabis reporter reporting on something that's illegal. Uh, although, that's a good point, but although I noticed political, uh, so I'm not sure if you know, everyone's familiar with political here, but uh, big U.S. online publication, they started a cannabis newsletter and... The reporter f who was covering cannabis in, uh, for Bloomberg in Toronto, she was moved by Bloomberg to work out of New York. So I think that media companies in the U.S. are picking up on the fact that a either cannabis might become legal there federally, you know, on the ballot in November 2020. So they're kind of gearing up to that, uh, or there's just so much going on in terms of business and the movement of money that it justifies cover coverage, right? So. Yeah, I just wanted to make that point about the U.S. For sure. Also, the yeah. Boston Globe does a really good um, do. cannabis report, and APS, I think, a, yeah. few, a few reporters now, yeah. so it's getting there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Brett, to answer your question on how the media has been covering cannabis, whether they've been doing it well, one of the things to remember about how media covers anything is in this day and age when Google and Facebook are eating up 98% of your revenue, media companies really need, uh, and, I, and I don't know if I particularly agree with this, but it's a reality of the business, they have to cater to their audience all the time. So it's not so much this conventional way of what we think is important we should cover, it's what do people, what are people gonna click on? And, and so you saw with in the lead up to legalization. So Vice started doing pot reporting a long time ago and they were reporting on the culture of it and they were deep into it and it was actually really, really incredible reporting that a lot of mainstream media never did. And 
uh, but in the lead up to legalization, after you know we announced that it was going to be legal in the end of 2016, you saw mainstream media starting to get into it, and the, there was a lot of interest in it. Um, a lot of clicks on cannabis stories. They were always the best performing stories on sites. Uh, it kind of the Globe and Mail hired five new cannabis reporters. They started report on business, a subs subscription only. And you know, at, at FP, we hired a cannabis reporter before me. And uh, we had the Growth Up, uh, which is our cannabis-sponsored uh, kind of newsletter thing uh, site. So what you saw, though, after legalization and a year after that, uh, I guess now, um, there is less interest in cannabis. That's just, I mean, cannabis wasn't an election issue. I was covering the election for 40 days. And people from the industry were like, you need to do a story about cannabis and the elections. And I was like, I'm not going to do a story on that because it's not that, it's, it's just not going to, you know, it's not that interesting. Maybe it's interesting to me and us in the room, but generally it's just not something people are going to care about uh, and it won't justify coverage, right? So I think th that, that's what's interesting about the media landscape and how we're covering cannabis. Yeah, yeah and, and Jay, you clearly saw an opportunity here. So you saw a void that there wasn't enough coverage, and then you started Business of Cannabis to provide more in-depth, specific coverage to the industry. What are your thoughts on the landscape today? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the biggest player who write about it all the time is, is Matt, certainly on the Canadian landscape, but also MJ Biz, and, and the National Post and the Growth Hub and the Financial Post, all those things cover it well, and, and Matt, this is all he writes about, right? But for, from our perspective, what was making the industry, certainly in Canada and then the rest of the world, really unique were the, it wasn't necessarily newsworthy, it was just insight into the industry. And that's what we were compelled by. We thought the industry would be compelled to think about itself and talk about itself like that. And then if we could in some way take the interesting things that we saw, which were generally not even consumer facing, but really sometimes techn technology from sort of inside of grows to like consumer facing technology or patient facing technology, that was compelling to us, but would never rise, necessarily rise to the level that Matt would cover because it's just not newsworthy per se, but it's a real deep insight into what's happening. That was fascinating to us. We thought the people in the industry would be interested, and that's where we really tried to focus. So when we say what's interesting to our audience, like our audience is only mostly, besides my parents and my family, the people that, are, that look at it are people who are like super keen on the industry itself or in the industry. So it's really an insider's look at what's happening, and we need to expand beyond what's happening in Canada because a, there's more opportunity outside than inside, and B, there's an opportunity potentially for Canadian companies to lead that, and that's the next sort of wave of stories and things we want to talk about because that's interesting. But I mean, I, I would say of the 500 things that we've done, 500 interviews for sure, like most of it has very little interest outside the sort of 10,000 people we talk to on a general basis. Like, it's just not that interesting, except for that core audience, it's fucking brilliant, right? And that's good enough for us. Yeah, it makes sense. And to build on that, I remember early on in cannabis, so when we were talking about you know, 2015 and 16, there was a big concern that the media was too cozy with the established players, with the licensed producers primarily, and that there wasn't enough critical journalism happening on them. Uh, and I think that kind of began to change after uh, the organogram pesticide scandal is when I kind of first saw the shift. 
But do you feel like that's still the case, or is the is the press maturing in this space so much so that they're beginning to do more critical investigative journalism on on these companies? I mean, yes, I think they're definitely you know we're we're starting to dig a little bit more. We're starting to be more skeptical. But I think one of the differences with covering any other industry, say telecoms or whatever, energy environment, uh, and cannabis is that because cannabis was such a nascent industry, you. You, you were relying on information coming from the licensed producers. You didn't have people outside who were neutral. Everyone, so when I first started covering it, I really struggled to find a neutral source on anything. Any, everyone had an agenda, everyone was pushing something. It was, the money was coming from the, you know, like from, from the public markets, the licensed producers, it was all industry focused. So I think that was the reason, I don't think it was, the media so much not wanting to be critical as as just struggling to figure out who to go to for real in, you know real inside information and then you know there were a lot of uh, people on the outside and short sellers including included in this like analysts who started also looking at that industry critically and so it kind of you know morphed into a more typical industry and i think that's that's when we started really becoming more critical but i i would say that that was a, was a I, yeah, that's how I would describe the trend. Matt? I think that um, you and Mark did like a great job this summer on the CanTrust reporting. Unfortunately, I wasn't here for that, but it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, um, For you. Not for them. No. Um, nor the people who work there. Um, so what I do, it's, a, I guess, not necessarily in investigative journalism into the current operations of the cannabis companies in Canada, but I try and present uh, an accurate and honest picture of, of markets uh, in Canada and around the world. Um, this applies more to international markets outside of North America because I think in Canada, the market's pretty well, uh, the picture is pretty clear. Health Canada is very transparent in terms of data, easily the most transparent in the whole world when it comes to cannabis data reporting. Um, I know we complain, everyone in the industry complains a lot about Health Canada, but the amount of data and information we get from them is, is unbelievable. They're very transparent and no other country in the world provides um, accurate, reliable, consistent data on a monthly basis and they have a media team who will reply to you in between one hour and a couple days, but that's still not that bad. Um, in other countries like um, Australia, for example, they'll reply to you weeks later, and more often than not, you have to file a freedom, freedom of information request just to get basic data. Um, so we have it pretty good here for, with Health Canada. But in terms of, so back to the, the, the media reporting, international, um, there's definitely, there definitely needs to be more um, critical reporting on, on, on markets and on, on specific companies, because what we saw play out in Canada in the last couple years is happening around the world, but they don't have um, the reporters and the, and the resources that we have. So uh, just for an example, like a lot of money is going into Colombia right now. Um, but why? Because there's no market there. And why is everyone so excited about that market? There's no sales. Um, domestically or internationally, they're shipping CBD, but companies have spent, I want to say, 100 million, 200, 300 million dollars on, on that market alone. And I went on a couple tours of their facilities, and these are great companies. They're run by very intelligent people. But who are you going to sell it to? Are you going to 
you going to ship all your product to Germany? I'm not too sure that's going to work. Are you going to send it, send it to Canada? Well, I'm not so sure there's a huge market here for product that's imported from Colombia. It's just an example of like we need critical reporting on, on different markets, and that's good for businesses, and it's good for consumers, it's good for investors. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of things to investigatively research. And it's a new industry, and very few people understood it. I think reporters were probably ahead of where the rest of the world was, but there's still lots to do, and I'm not sure we'll ever get there. I'm also not sure there's lots of investigative reporting happening. It's very expensive to do. It rarely gets done. It's mostly political or graft, and that's just not... That's, that's not the sexiest thing in cannabis. At the same time, there's been some really egregious shit, which was not discovered by reporters. It was discovered by either Health Canada or whistleblowers, and so, or police, so, or short sellers. So like it's, we're ways away from that, and I'm not sure we're ever gonna get there because I'm not sure there's deep dives into lots of industries that are new or old. I, I would say one of the things we're really lucky about when covering cannabis is that they're all publicly traded companies. So it's not as hard to dig in. I mean, in tech, I was just talking to my colleague about you know covering Uber before I went public. How do you do something like that, right? It's so hard because you know there's something going on, but you just can't find the data. So I think, I think just from an investigative perspective, the, the main kind of coverage I guess I do on a day-to-day -day basis is I just study the balance sheets and I just try to figure out what's going on there that shouldn't be, um, yeah. Can I just say one thing? Yes, everybody needs that. That's super important, A, to make or save people money or make sure companies don't fuck up. And from our perspective, that is the head of the industry, That's the those are the people, but from what we like to talk about, it's actually, the next wave, and I'm not sure they'll all be publicly traded, certainly not on the consumer or brand front, and I think that's uh, not necessarily in Matt's world, but in the general people who want to know about what's happening in the industry, it's really about publicly traded companies. But what's happening in, inside the industry and where the trends are and where the m money that's not public is going and where these companies are making sort of brand or product bets or technology things that are underpinning the whole thing, that to us, like from our perspective, like <laughs> the smaller audience that we cover or talk to, like that is what's most important. That and it's not even data business intelligence necessarily, it's just trend and, and news necessarily, but not news that will be in the Financial Post, but news that'll be on business of cannabis because that's what we're looking at. Well, first of all, let the record show I'm an ex-Uber employee and it's a great company and would strongly <laughs> encourage everyone to buy the stock. Uh, but. Uh, you all, in some capacity, are related to a cannabis-specific media outlet, whether it be The Growth Op or MJ Biz or Business of Cannabis. And Van Mel, I couldn't agree more that interest in cannabis at large is slowing down. Yeah. There, you know, it's, it's a bubble like any other bubble. I remember when crypto was all the rage. I remember when cannabis was all the rage. And I can see very near when psychedelics are going to be all the rage. Um, and so what do you think the future of these cannabis-specific outlets is? Is it international? Is it consumer? What, what do you think the future is for these, uh, for these, these type of uh, media outlets? Uh, I think they have a short... I, I don't think that they have a long-term future. I think that they have some of... You know, I, I think it'll just go the way of media. So, some of them will survive. Some of them will do well if they are backed by, say, you know... It depends on the business structure, right? So the growth op is belongs to us. It's backed by Postmedia. The sponsors uh, 
And so if post-media decides, you know, it, you know it, if it has the backing of a bigger company, that's fine. Um, I think, though, that uh, not not just because it's my rival, the Globe and Mail, but I think the report on cannabis business subscription model where you have to pay 500 to $600 to get news, uh, I don't know how much that will last because a lot of the time you can get what you're getting on report on business on FP or on BNN Bloomberg, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure as to what specifically they're providing that's, that's you know, additional, so I think it's like any media company, the best, the best will survive. There will be room for one or two biz, uh, cannabis-specific publications. Uh, MJ Biz has a very solid business model because they're doing it all over the world, like, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not too confident on the long-term prospects. I'm confident on our long-term prospects. <laughs> I said MJ Biz. I know, I know. I'm just joking. Um, I think we're an example of a media company that found uh, a new revenue stream that's, going, that's driving um, growth now and in the future, which uh, I'm, I'm grateful for because the, the company's doing well. Um, every time, so I don't know if everyone knows here, so Marijuana Business Daily, we're a media company, we have two branches basically, media and then events. And our events, uh, we do in MJ Biz in Las Vegas, um, and that's growing a lot. So every time a new state comes on online or legalizes medical or recreational cannabis, you're adding hundreds or thousands of business, businesses. And since we're a business-to-business -business media company, um, that just means growth is, is, is sustainable. It's going, uh, it, I think we're pretty safe for a while anyways. Um, so, yeah. Till we overtake you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Never going to happen. And that the, the totally the, those models work or work as well as they work now. And yours probably works better than yours for the oh, for the time being. Um, I'm like a, this is embarrassing. It's confession time. Like I'm I'm like a Gary V nerd. Um, and, that that and, actually is embarrassing. <laughs> no, that's why I said it. That's why I said it. But 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 there's truth in that. Uh, I'll say one thing. It didn't need to come from Gary V. It could have just been my original. But the idea that like find your audience and just keep going at that audience. It's like selling a brand too. Like, You find your 10,000 people, it's more important to make them happy than find the next 10,000, right? And MJ Biz has found their massive thing and it's, it's massive. Ours is smaller, uh, but we found it or we think we found it and not that we're gonna keep pounding it, but you gotta innovate and grow within that, but always make sure that that's your core, which is really difficult to do at a mainstream publication that is, we serve, like Financial Post, we serve people interested in money and finance, and cannabis is one of them. I was gonna say canopy, certainly that too. But cannabis is one of them, and like there's a whole bunch of other things too, and so it gets, you know, a, a, you know almost everyday coverage, but it's not, it's one time a day. Um, and for us, it's, it's we need to, we, you know, we have an insatiable appetite of like cannabis nerds that wanna know about all things cannabis, and that's our job to fill it. If we can grow it, that's great. We have events, which is, you know, how these companies make money. Um, and we're going to keep going at it. Uh, just, just an example of how a publication like FP kind of restructures from time to time. So, for instance, in early 2017, when there was the massive real estate boom and the, the lead up to the real estate boom, we had a dedicated real estate reporter doing every, everything and there was tons to cover. 
but as the market, as regulations came in, the market kind of, you know, tapered out, it plateaued, we moved the real estate reported to cover something else. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have a dedicated cannabis reporter anymore in maybe about a year, you know, I could be moved to cover something else, a, another industry that warrants coverage. So I think that's a difference between a mainstream publication and something that is just very specifically focused on the industry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I guess just before we open up the open it up to the floor for questions, uh, we have a lot of people here who I'm sure want to get media and want to get coverage. And so I'd love to hear, and I guess we can start with you, Jay, but uh, I'd love to hear from a, the perspective of a business-to-business -business, uh, outlet, what are some tips that you can give to people when pitching media? Call me. No, don't call me, but email me. And I, I mean, for anybody who's, I mean, we've had on a lot of people, even in this room or companies related to, like ours is the, I don't ours is the easiest to get on, obviously. I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's really difficult. No, but like, but we're interested in talking to anybody. We have lots of time. You know, we don't have a set format necessarily. But I mean, I've worked on the other side too. I've worked in public affairs and public relations and, you know, everything they've described, uh, the industry growing, waning interest in some cases, um, newsworthiness of only the sort of biggest publicly traded companies in the midst of scandal trying to break into that. Like, that's a shitty environment. Yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. Matt, do you have anything? Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. One thing I would say is um, don't start the relationship now with, with the, the journalists and, and, the, and the reporters. You, you want to tell your story in the future. So in other words, when you have your story that you want to tell, don't just call someone you don't know and hope they tell your story because it's probably not going to happen unless it's an amazing story. Um, tell, everyone needs to find, uh, for your businesses, you need to find unique stories. Now, you pro everyone probably hears that a lot, but it's the absolute truth because most of the pitches we get are almost identical. Um, another thing is to uh, is just tell the truth. Don't exaggerate because it's not going to help if you exaggerate or lie in a press release or to a reporter because they're going to figure it out before it's published anyways. Uh, I, I totally agree, especially the do not lie thing. Um, so I think that what I struggle with with PR, uh, with the PR industry and getting pitches is a lot of the time people don't see what I've already written. So I've, I've been covering the industry for a very long time and I've written so many stories, a lot of which I'm still being pitched on. And if I'm pitched on something to follow up and, you know, there's a very compelling reason to write on, write on that story on that particular day, I will pay attention. But, you know, in, in the case of FP, we are, a lot of what we write eventually goes into the newspaper, so we have very limited real estate. So on a, on a, on a daily basis, I'm not going to be able to cover a lot of smaller, more repetitive stories. I just need something very unique. I need to, what I like is when I'm pitched on a person that's really interesting and I've never heard of this person, He's, he or she has come into the industry and is doing something I've not seen anyone else do. That is a reason for me to write the story and report on, uh, on, on, the, on the person or the company. But I think what I tend to get is, I'll report on say Cantras or Hexo today, I was writing on Hexo, and then I'll get a follow-up email saying, I see that you wrote on Cantras and XO. How about covering what's been going on with this company without giving me 
a reason. So the reason why I covered Hexo is because they laid off 200 people. I'm not just going to randomly cover a cannabis company for existing as a cannabis company for having this many square feet of you know, real estate. I'm, not, I'm just not going to write that story, right? So I think that's what to keep in mind. And, and it's what Matt said. It's very unique ideas that you can picture yourself looking at when you scroll on Apple News and you see a headline that's interesting to you, that's kind of what you have to picture, for me at least, when you, when you pitch. Yeah. Can I just add, add to that? Another thing, <laughs> another thing to kind of along, along those lines is know, know the journalists that you're pitching to. Um, know what they write about, what their beat is, what they wrote about last, what they wrote about two weeks ago, um, because that's going to, it should give you a good idea if they will um, write, write your story. Because if they never write about that, then they probably won't accept that story. Uh, journalists prefer to be contacted in different ways. I mean, I prefer phone because my inbox is just a disaster usually. Uh, so I like it when people call me. And then if I, I can, then I can also give you a, a, a better answer as to why I won't cover that or why I will cover that. Something I don't necessarily want to put in an email. So I prefer phone. You're going to get a lot of calls now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, does anybody have any questions uh, from the floor? Yeah. So it's uh, for all of you. Uh, my name is Clarissa, and I'm taking a master's in environmental studies. And my topic is cannabis sustainability. So you mentioned specifically, like, uh, one of the issues on, of sustainability of uh, the business, the industry as a whole. So I would ask you all, like, uh, could you tell me, like, what would be, like, the three main sustainability issues that the industry currently has? That's it. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, one, uh, one an enormous use of electricity. Two, an enormous use of water, and three, the packaging is a disaster. There you go. We just killed everybody with <laughs> cannabis. Mella, Matt, uh, what's your Jay. name again? Jay, uh, for coming uh, coming out to the panel. Uh, really appreciate it, guys. Uh, this was a really good discussion. Please give them a round of applause.